0: Every night when I went to bed, I would take my nightly prescriptions and just think like, when do I do this? Because I knew I had enough at any time to just take them and die. And I always wondered how many days would it take for them to find me?
1: It's time to open your mind and expand your empire. You're listening to The Ted Huff Show. Join in for stories that embrace imperfections and become the inspiration you need to achieve true greatness in your life through actionable progress in the pursuit of self discovery, self improvement, and self purpose. Where will your story take you? Now let's get it started with the man himself, your host, Ted Huff.
2: Welcome to episode 20 of the Ted Hub Show. We have Holly Godfrey on, the founder of Beautiful State of Mind. Holly grew up in a violent, rock and roll lifestyle family where she learned how to cope with life through drugs, alcohol, and aggressive behavior. Holly was ready to carry out the elaborate suicide she had planned, but a chance encounter would stop her and her life has changed forever. In this episode, you will hear how Holly became a product of her environment and how breast implants illness changed her perception of life and what she's doing to help others with this second chance. Hey, Holly, thanks for joining us on the Ted Huff Show. I'm so excited to have you on, especially the journey that you've gone through in your life is is very interesting, and, and how you've overcome it is, is even more interesting. Um, but let's get started with you kind of giving an overview with everybody of of who Holly is today and what you've got going on before we start to dive into how you got there.
0: All right. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to do this segment with you. Um, I guess where I come from is um, I'm a child of two alcoholics and drug addicts and had a bit of a rough childhood, a lot of abuse, um, and then I continued into abusing myself the same way that my parents did. Um, in the past couple years, I've overcome a lot. I've turned my life around and found my worth, and now I'm just really focused on helping other people um, find that that strength within.
2: You mentioned growing up as a child of two alcoholics. Um, I know you have uh, a younger sister as well. You really grew up in the drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. Tell us what what that was like and, and kind of give everybody an understanding of what that really was because we say it and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, cool. That means loud music and people hanging out, but it's a little bit more intense than that.
0: It is. It's it's dirty. Um, I you know growing up in it, I thought that it was really cool that we were living that way because we just thought my dad was such a rock star, and the other guys in the band, you know, they were our uncles, and that's the life we knew. But really, what it what it boiled down to was my dad being at the bar every night, um, practicing. If they weren't playing at the bar. We had that party atmosphere around us all the time. Um, my mom worked in a bar on and off if she had a job, and it was a lot of turmoil. They fought a lot. Of course, with any couple that drinks a lot comes a lot of fighting, and it was just very—it um, was violent, and at the same time, like, we thought it was really fun, Um It's funny, when the bar would shut down at night, the bar that was maybe a mile away, I always joke that we could see a parade of cars coming to my house at like (laughs) 2 in the morning. And there's all these people hanging out partying, and they were doing cocaine. And I remember my mom having this um, piece of depression glass. It was a a cake plate, and it was pink. And I remember lines of cocaine drawn out on that. Oh, my goodness. And keg parties. You know, my mom made all the food and we'd always have a keg. And there was um, a net in the backyard with people playing volleyball and we had a ping pong table. It was just, you know, I, I grew up thinking that life was a party. Growing up in Utah, primarily a Mormon state, I definitely was the outcast. Um, friends weren't really allowed to stay the night very often. They didn't like my parents. My dad had pot growing downstairs in our spare room, you know, with a whole hydroponic garden going with lights and everything and um I can
2: I uh, can imagine I can imagine that didn't go over too well with uh with with law enforcement if they ever found out.
0: No. Yeah. So um, one of my babysitters called the cops one night thinking somebody was in my garage and we, we had cats and the cat had had a litter of babies. So she heard something out in the garage and called the cops and the cops came through and my dad was playing that night, you know, and my mom was out with them and those cops came through and saw my dad's plants and and took them all. So that babysitter never babysat again. But uh, Yeah. You know, we just grew up thinking it was okay. You know, if we lost a tooth and we were in bed and the tooth fairy was sp- supposed to come that night, we had a line of people at our bedroom doors coming in and sticking money money underneath <laughs> our pillow. And I remember waking up one morning and I had like $27 under my pillow because all my mom's friends, you know, oh, look how cute she is sleeping. And we'd wake up in the morning and there'd be people passed out all over the house. And we would, you know, nudge whoever was there and say, hey, will you make me some cereal? And we just grew up thinking all those people were our aunts and uncles. And, you know, my mom was beautiful. She was just a knockout. And my dad was the rock star. And and if you can imagine, like, I thought that was big. I, I didn't realize he's just a small town band playing in bars, you know, he did tour, um, a lot of the Western states, but I thought it was great until the fighting got really bad. So, and then, you know, I just wanted dad to be home and mom to be sober.
2: Cause in a family dynamic like that, it, it sometimes is, it's hard to feel like you fit in with the family. And it also, as you would mentioned, fitting in with the folks in the area that you lived. What did you do to, to feel like you were part of a group, uh, a community, a tribe? But what things did you do as a child that, that, that pulled you into one group or another or pulled you away from stuff? What, what were some of the things that you, you may have done?
0: My sister's, um, about four and a half years younger than me. And early on, I, I wanted to be part of the neighborhood kids. I wanted to feel like I fit in. So I would oftentimes go to church with them and go to primary and, and try to, you know, fit in that way. But I, I smell like smoke because my mom smoked in the house. So this is the, the seventies, early eighties. And although we knew that it was bad, um, it still wasn't a big deal to smoke in the house. So, so I went, you know, into the LDS church smelling of smoke and they would send home pamphlets about smoking or, or finding, you know, God or whatever. And they had me stash those all over the house. I remember putting them like in the silverware drawer and in my mom's books. And (laughs) my mom said, um, hell no, you're not doing this anymore. You're not going to the church, you know? So she took me out of that environment. Um, So, I I started hanging out with the bad kids. I started hanging out with people that fit my family dynamic. Um, I started smoking when I was about twelve, and by the time I was fifteen years old, I was my mom's best friend, and I partied with her. And
2: help us, so so for for those who don't understand, I mean, help us understand what what being your mom's best friend and partying her was like.
0: Well it was, it's funny that my sister was my dad's favorite and I was my mom's favorite. And you know, my, my dad abused me pretty bad. He, he would knock the shit out of me and he would use the belt on me to the point where I had welts across my ass and I had a gym teacher call the cops. Um, so my mom kind of coddled me. She, she would stick up for me against my dad. And so it was like them against us. And as my mom's drinking got worse, you know, she, she was treated so bad by my dad and we just needed to be best friends. So she would, as early as 14 years old, my dad, my dad had a job at that point and she didn't. And so her and I would stay up all night and we'd watch little house on the prairie or, or, um, the other show with the car kit on it. I can't remember, but we would push the car out of the driveway and down the street, and then we'd start it about a block away so that he didn't hear us leave, and we would go to 7-Eleven up the street, and she let me smoke, but she always said, you know, smoke the same brand that I smoke so your dad won't see a different cigarette but in the ashtray, and so I did, and then she started buying me wine coolers, and this is back when you could run a VHS movie at 7-Eleven, so we would just stay up all night drinking and smoking, and I... I really think I just wanted her to love me so much that I just wanted to be whatever she needed me to be, even though we had our horrible moments too, man, we'd knock the hell out of each other. She was a mean drunk. Um, But it just, you know, we'd hear my dad get up for work and he'd go in to wake my sister up and me and my mom would have a bed made on the floor in front of um, the TV and we'd pretend to be asleep and then we'd sleep all day. And it just, you know, and then, I didn't go to school. I didn't get good grades. My dad didn't understand what the hell was going on because he didn't really understand what me and my mom were doing. But by the time I turned 15, my mom and dad separated and um, she was doing a lot of cocaine and she was freebasing it and her boyfriends that she had were doing that. And one night she said, you know, what, I know you're going to do cocaine eventually and I'd rather you just do it with me than try it oh, out wow. on the street and i had a friend over at the time my friend heidi and my mom gave us lines all night and we sat there and watched her freebase it and how high she was and we ended up trying to freebase with her too and i can't i was so sick i i was sick that whole night throwing up and then she made me go to school the next day so it just progressively Got worse and worse over the years, and I think just because she was so sad and she, she knew what she was amounting to, and, it you know she wanted she wanted me on her side, so the way to get me on her side was to have me join her in everything she was doing.
2: In preparing for today, um, you had mentioned, you know, shortly after all of that started, that you ended up having. To take a trip to Chicago for a little
0: while, yeah.
2: Did that trigger something in in your mindset, and or looking back, does that change the way you look at things?
0: You know, it was it was a really bad spot for me. The way that we grew up um, early on, we had a really great life. My mom and dad had had their shit together, and we would have dinner every night, and we sat at the table together and we camped and hiked and everything. We really had a great life. But once that started dissipating, I think I reached out, um, anyway to get attention Mm -hmm. and, you know, any attention even bad is attention. And so I started hanging out with older men, not, you know, five or six years older than me. And, um, I just started getting in a lot of trouble, and so I, I got myself in some trouble, and my, my mom and dad were going through their divorce at that time, and I ended up pregnant at 15 years old, and they sent me to Chicago, and my aunt lives there, my mom's sister, and um, I got there, and you know they had my future mapped out for me. Clearly, I didn't end up having a baby, but I think I was just crying out for anybody's attention, anybody to... I don't know. It was it was an ugly time. And looking back now, I feel sorry for that little girl. Like if I if I could find little girls like that right now, the things I could tell them to help them through because it's it is sad. Um, I was a mess, and I just it just got worse too. I I didn't really learn from the mistakes I made. They just seemed to be normal, and. You know, I was hanging out with the same type of person. So it's not like I was hanging out with this bunch of religious girls that right. went to primary every day and everything, and I was the bad girl. I just fit in because I was hanging out with all the bad kids. So it never really seemed to be a big deal that I was getting into all that trouble.
2: Growing up in a environment that is, as you've you've called it in the past, a violent environment. Um, how how did that transfer through to even your relationships today?
0: Up until 2010, every relationship I had had some type of violence in it, and it, a lot of times it was me, just because I thought that was normal. Um, I would get really mad or really frustrated, and my way to deal with that was to hit, or I don't. I was just really violent and, and had a lot of anger issues. And it seems like every guy that I was with, uh, had the same ones, or maybe I brought those out in them. But until, um, 2010 or actually 2009, I was married at the time and me and my husband got in a fight on Valentine's night. And
2: that's the perfect night to get into a fight. Is a
0: um, you know, our night, our our big date for Valentine's was to go get some cocaine and go to the bar. And um, we got home and, and fought that night. And eventually, you know, I went to go get in bed with my daughter thinking it would stop. And he grabbed a gun and told me he was going to kill himself. So I called the cops and they took us both to jail.
2: Wow. It was a- both of you?
0: Yeah and there's gotta be there's gotta be a good reason
2: behind that one
0: there is i wouldn't have gone to jail if i would have kept my mouth shut but he had ran out the door with the gun and in between the time that i called the cops and they got there he had come back to the house and gave me the gun and my daughter went and hit it my oldest was there And so when they got there, I was really combative and screaming at them because they had their guns drawn on him and he was on the ground and I was screaming, please don't shoot him. And um, I I was just interrupting and what they were trying to do. So they took us both. They did drop my charges. But, you know, this all happened in front of my oldest daughter and she had to write a report about it. And she didn't talk to me for about six months. And rightfully so. And I ended up losing custody of my youngest one, too, because her dad found out about the night and took me to court and fought and won. And I know now I was teaching them, um, you know, the habits that have been passed down from my mom and dad on to me. and, And thank God, both of my daughters have amazing dads and very normal lives, and, you know, they don't act the way that I did. So I'm really thankful for that. But, you know until that divorce, I just, that's, that's the same relationships that my parents had and I had them all those years too. So I finally got out of that and thank God.
2: (laughs) You're, you're very open with the, the fact that you had breast augmentation surgery and then found that you had the uh, breast implant illness as well. Um, going back to, to getting that surgery that led to the, to the breast implant, uh, illness. Um, do you remember what, what the thought process or the driver was to go through the surgery to begin with?
0: Yeah. And And what was going uh,
2: on in your life at that time too?
0: I was partying. I, I was part of a bar. Me and some friends opened up. I did some construction and I found the funding for it. So they gave me a portion of the bar. This is back in the rave, you know, days when the rave was getting big and we were doing ecstasy and ketamine and GHB and Coke and drinking. And, you know, I was right in the middle of this scene and I don't know. I loved the attention. And then I had my younger sister that was five foot nine and beautiful. And, um, I always felt really inferior to her. I always felt like I wasn't as pretty and that, that guys liked her more than me. And her and I went on a trip to Vegas and, and won some money. And when we came back, she got hers done and I ended up finding enough money to get mine done too. And so I really just think that I was so insecure with myself and boobs were a way to get attention. I wanted guys to look at me and I wanted to be looked at as sexy. And um, I think in today's society, you know, there's a standard of what a woman is supposed to look like and what qualifies her as pretty or sexy or beautiful. And we as women are always trying to chase that down or we feel inadequate if we're not there. And it makes me sad Um, that all these women feel that way or that we're out getting Botox or whatever it may be. We're just, we never feel a hundred percent. And this has led so many women to get breast implants. And there's so many that have had the illness and gone through years and years. I went through 15 years of being sick. So, um, just recently, almost a year ago, I had those removed and my life's completely changed.
2: On May 4th, a year ago, just about, you had them removed. What made you start researching to see what was going on? I mean, you'd mentioned to me that you just didn't feel right, but what was what was that breaking point for you that you're like, I'm just going to Google the heck out of this thing and figure out or Google the heck out of whatever the symptoms were to really start to figure out what was going on?
0: You know, I, I had been actively looking for an answer to the way I felt for years. And I did get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that affects your bones and joints. And after that, every time I went in with a new problem, um, new symptom, they would just say, hey, it's, it's your ankylosing spondylitis. And I'm um, sorry, what? It's ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, so basically sorry. That's, what, <laughs> that's what a mouthful. That Fusing of the bones. So all of my bones in my body are fusing together um, And it is painful. I've got it under control pretty well now, but I just kept getting more and more symptoms um, I Just felt like I had the flu all the time my fingers or my hands were swollen my veins were popping out My skin was yellow. My eyes were gray I had no energy. I mean just getting out of bed in the morning was excruciating. I just couldn't do it. I ended up quitting my job and working for myself because I I was having a really hard time getting to work on time and, and fulfilling, you know, my duties.
2: So going to the doctor, I'm assuming that, you know, you they tested for something and it's like, "Yep, tested for this." And kind of yeah. for for those women that are watching uh, or listening, what types of things started popping up? And it just, it really, for you, are like, this isn't making a whole lot of sense that that led you to the breast implant illness.
0: The way I got led to the breast implant illness was actually my nail lady. She had listened to me for a couple of years, complain about everything wrong with me. Like, oh, they can't figure this out. Now I've tested positive for, um, Hashimoto's or lupus or I've got fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. I mean everything that you could possibly have. That's I had quite a list. But the doctors it and it's even more than that. It's insane the things I had. I had um, pleurisy in my chest, I had costochondritis. I had a heart condition called S V T and I had to have surgery on my heart. I I went into S V T seven times in one year. Oh wow. All of these things are caused by breast implant illness um and you just throughout your life you know you get diagnosed with things and you don't compile them all together to see the bigger picture Mm -hmm. until you stumble upon this and when my nail lady said you know holly maybe this is breast implant illness you should look it up a friend of ours just went through it and i got home and i i googled it and i started watching youtube videos and i i text my friend that had hers removed and I just remember I just started bawling and went, oh, my God, this is me. There's an answer. And meantime, you know, my kids and family and friends had they'd just become so tired of me because I was just constantly complaining that I didn't feel good. And nobody mm. believed me. I remember telling a friend of mine, Judy, like, I know I have cancer and they just can't find it. It's got to be because I am so sick. And... When I found out about this illness, I really had a, a light bulb moment. I just.
2: How long did it take? Kidding. How long did it take from the time that you were like, I think this is it to the time that you had them removed?
0: Um, it was about two months.
2: Oh, wow. Really I, fast. You
0: know, I, I didn't have the money to get them taken out. You know, I quit my job. Insurance doesn't pay for it because it's not a medically proven um, problem. Mm hmm. Um I knew I had my tax return coming back and I did a GoFundMe and I skimped and saved, you know, I was wallpapering houses and doing some tile and painting everything I had. You know, I, I didn't care if I, I ate dinner, I was gonna make sure I had that money. And so I came up with the cash to do it and then had four weeks, you know, unable to work. And the night before I got my nails done, I had planned on killing myself. I had left a couple no
2: You'd mentioned to me that you had planned an elaborate or elaborately planned, however you want to say it, but the suicide. I did. That was what within two months of of the removal surgery, or how much further back was that?
0: I don't think that I would have made it another week. Um, I Every day I got braver and braver to finally do it. And I was on such a heavy prescription of narcotics for my pain, and I couldn't sleep because of my pain. So I had Ambien, and then with my heart condition, I had I, um, I was on a heart medication that was to slow down my heart rate because it was so high all the time. So I found out when I had my hysterectomy, they they went to give me my medication for my heart, and I said that's not my you know the right pill. And they argued with me and finally gave me the right pill. And my doctor told me the next day, she said, if you took that with the pain medication that you were on, you would have just fallen into a sleep and died. It would have slowed your heart down so, so drastically with your pain medication, you would have just died. So I knew that just kind of stuck in the back of my mind. Like if I ever want to kill myself, all I have to do is take extra heart medication with some narcotics. I just knew nobody would listen to me and I didn't know where to go. I felt so alone and so scared. And I, I was so sick. I can't, I can't explain to you how horrible I You just I wanted felt. to stop
2: feeling that way.
0: I that did. Way. I was just done. And you know, I love my girls more than anything. Anybody that knows me knows I'm obsessed with both of my daughters. It's a little bit extreme, but <laughs> you know, I did one thing right in my life by making those two. And at first I couldn't couldn't realize or fathom like how how do I leave my kids? What do I say to my kids in a letter? Um, how sick I was to be able to leave them. And I just got over it. I got to the point where I wasn't worth anything alive, you know, being a mom because I was so miserable all the time and I, I just simply thought I was gonna die. So I'd left a couple notes. I had one hanging on the fridge that said what songs to play at my funeral. And I'd written a couple other notes, you know, for them, telling them I was sorry. And every night when I went to bed, I would take my nightly prescriptions and just think, like, when do I do this? Because I knew I had enough at any time to just take them and die. And I always wondered how many days would it take for them to find me? You know, who... Because I I didn't have a job anymore. I didn't report to anybody. So how long would it take for somebody to think, hey, Holly's missing? And when I found out about the breast implant illness, all those thoughts went away. I finally knew I wasn't going to kill myself. And the weight that came off of me that day, and then when I had the implants taken out and I came home and I took that note off the fridge, it was such a freeing feeling to finally know that my kids weren't gonna bury me. So I think now now I have this understanding for people that have suicidal thoughts or have killed themselves. Like I know how how it feels to be in that that dark of a spot. It's the darkest spot you can ever get to. And I was there. And so now I just want to help people understand, you know, don't be ashamed if you're that depressed or if you're thinking about it or if you tried it. I hate to use the word um, normal because it's not normal. But in today's society, it kind of is normal. And and instead of being ashamed and hiding how depressed you are, um, you need to come forward and be open about it because that's how you get help. You can't help anybody that isn't letting you know how sad they are, how de- depressed they are. And although we have a lot of people that go to counseling and, and seek out help, I really don't think that they are 100% transparent. I think a lot of it gets sugarcoated because they're ashamed. So um, I just want to be there for people that have um, that feeling in their heart of just, you know, not being worth anything and and not knowing what to do. Because I've really, I've come so far since having my implants out. I've really turned my life around and I love life again. And even more so now, like life is so much more beautiful. I've always appreciated life and loved it and loved nature. But now even more, it's, I'm so grateful to be, you know, alive and healthy.
2: You have, have lived and it sounds like you've lived a life, um, of feeling like a victim to circumstances, a, a victim to uh, an outcome, um, a victim to illness. Um, what what do you do now that that you're in a in a better place uh, in your life? We know that that comes and goes. So like, there are the times where you really start to get that victim mentality start to set mm-hmm. in. Are there are there any things that you do to to bring back that feeling of empowerment and pull yourself away from feeling like things are happening to you versus for you or through you? Yeah.
0: You know, I I used to play victim all the time. I mean, everything was my mom's fault. Everything was my dad's fault. Everything was my ex-husband's fault. But what it boils down to is with my parents, I knew right from wrong. I knew that drugs and alcohol and smoking were wrong. I knew I needed to stay in school. Um, my ex-husband, man, I blamed everything on him because he really was um, he was a, a nightmare. But I backed everything up, and now I say it's not Ryan's fault because I knew who he was, and I married him. I knew the drugs were wrong and I did them with him. I knew fighting was wrong and I fought him. Um, I can't, you know, the breast implant thing. Yeah. The manufacturers have some shame because they, they really do know that they make you sick. But what if I had um, more self-confidence and didn't think I had to change myself to be loved? You know, then I wouldn't have got the implant. So I just really try to not play victim anymore. And turn everything around. I'm a firm believer in you can't fix anything that you don't own. I I love the saying "own your shit" because you can't fix anything if you don't. You know, you put blame. Well, it's so and so's fault. Well, it's not going to get fixed because so and so is not going to fix it. And when I am having my down days, um, I get outside. Uh, that played a huge part in my recovery with my my depression and my illness. I you know I quit smoking and I quit drinking and. I started, I went and bought a $50 bike at Walmart to see if I would actually use it or if it would collect dust. And I found, I love the feeling of being on that bike and going down a trail and seeing all of the colors and the birds and other people, you know, I say hi to everybody. I don't care how grumpy they look. I say hi to everybody and smile. Um, I'm hiking a lot and I find that there is beauty all around us. I don't care where you are. You could be walking down a dirty alley and find something that's pretty. You just really have to look for it and truly want to find it. And now, now that's my, it's my goal in life is to teach that to other people. I'm, I'm trying to get heavily involved with community and with some outreach outreach programs and put myself out there. And I've designed a business specifically for Utah. I mean, I went to a, an event today that is for the community of salt lake for um, drug abusers and homeless people and it was a really cool outreach program that my friends are part of and i went and involved myself with that today and some of those people were as normal as you and i years ago and just happened to to get the wrong doctor that put them on the wrong medication and so i it's my mission now to really help my community and even further than utah but I just want to make a difference and take these people in and say, look, I know how you feel. I 100% like identify with that dark, lonely, horrible place. And let me show you how I got out of it. Let me take you on a hike. Let me grab a bike. Let's go for a bike ride. Like anything that I can do to help them. Um, And I think it's working and it feels so good. Like I get so giddy every day when somebody texts me and says, you know, thank you for sharing your story. I went for a walk today or I drove up the canyon and I did feel better. Like I really feel like I'm making my mark and it feels, it makes all of this worth it. Like now I look at it and maybe I was supposed to have my parents. Maybe I was supposed to have the illness because now what I'm doing with it makes sense. Like I'm really making a positive out of it.
2: You developed a brand called beautiful beautiful um yeah and by, by the way you guys can check it out in the, in the in the show notes there so if you're watching the youtube video you'll see she just held up a, a hat but if you're listening in the show notes um she started beautiful um as as a way to share at least that's how i see it as a way to share her outdoor therapy with everybody And and to be able to really drive that other than, and maybe this is it, but is there any other belief behavior or habit that you have changed in the last two to three years that is bigger than, than that outdoor therapy?
0: I had to, I had to step away from the, the alcohol and drugs and really get raw with myself and, just accept who I was and what I put myself through. Um, a lot of the things I've gone through like a DUI or bar fights, whatever it may be, those were all because of me. And I really just had to own everything that I've done. And it's, it's so amazing. It's almost the, the day that I finally said, you know what, I'm going to own all this. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to, I'm gonna Everything that I've accomplished in the past couple years—that I swear, the day I said I was going to just start biting it, you know, eating this elephant one bite at a time, everything started turning around. And I, I think for me, that was key, was just owning it and stop blaming everybody and stop playing victim. But I couldn't do any of this if I didn't love myself and didn't believe in myself. So I don't think I really did prior to all of this. i I don't think you know, all the times I just drank to where I didn't feel and I could go to sleep. I, I don't think it was until I got rid of all of those habits and, and that disrespect of myself, you know, started really loving myself that all of this has turned around.
2: So you'd mentioned that you've started reading books to help you. What would you say is the one that has helped you the most? at this point?
0: Um, Not so much a book, but a person. Mel Robbins (laughs) is my favorite. She speaks to me. I understand her language. I, um, I think that her past is, similar to mine, like the way we treated people and the way we treated ourselves. Um, so I I just finished another one of her books Night Before Last, and I was actually pissed off that it was over because I'm like, where do I go from here? Like, what do I read next? And um, Joda Spenza, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, is such a good, powerful, in-depth book, you know, where you really look at the chemistry of the brain. And how um, we get used to, I mean, it's basically a chemical um, dependency, just like drugs and alcohol. We get used to those chemicals that we're producing in our brain based on a pattern or an event such as fighting or sadness. Um, So that was an eye-opener for me. That made sense to me of why I keep going back to the same repetitive lifestyle. I I love Dr. Joe. God, he's just brilliant. He's amazing. And that book, somebody recommended that to me, and I listened to it in a weekend driving to St. George and back. And I came back, and I just felt like I was a different person because I was like, I had that, oh, okay, aha moment. Now I understand how our brain works.
2: For those people who are out there that may be going through a hard time or are recovering from experiences similar or just as traumatic as what you've gone through. Let's give them three tactics that they can walk away with after listening today to help them get through and or become that person that they want to be.
0: The one that has really helped me and I I came up with a hashtag for it. It's say what you do, do what you say. I think if you, you know, you wake up every day and you know who you want to be, but and you're on your way, you're on that path, but you're just a little unsure. You really just have to start acting like the person that you want to be. I 100% believe this works. When I quit smoking, um, I was a smoker for 30 years, and I did love to smoke. It was a habit I enjoyed. I woke up every morning and I would say out, out loud repetitively, I don't smoke, I'm not a smoker, I don't smell like smoke. And, you know, I just finally started believing what I was telling myself. And I think that's really important. You know, it, it, if you vocalize what you want to be or who you are, you will become that person. Own, own your shit. <laughs> um, ad- address your issues. Don't sugarcoat it. Like, own your story. We all have a story and I'm sure we all have skeletons in our closet and things that we're ashamed of, but that's what makes it okay to own your story. You don't have to to tell lies. You can be open and honest. I've shared a lot of things about my personal life with others and all it's done for me is connected me with people that trust me and look up to me. Um, and the third one Hmm.
2: Everybody always gets stuck. They get like the first two really, yeah. really strong. And then that third one just kind of sneaks up.
0: Respect yourself. Nothing in your life will go your way if you don't respect yourself. Um, you'll allow people to mistreat you. You won't believe in yourself. You won't have courage. You just have to to be your biggest fan. Some days I do live videos or I post something that I'm just like, oh my God, nobody's going to like this or people are going to think I'm dumb and I do it and the response I get is actually always good. So I think you just have to be your number one fan and and all of this just wraps around believing in yourself.
2: What is the best way for people to reach out to you if, if they want to get your guidance or have you helped them or understand the situation that you came from and how it might be able to help them what is the best way for them to reach you
0: uh, probably my facebook page which is beautiful state of mind spelled with utah and beautiful um i'm doing a lot on there and that's kind of my hub right now where i yeah, i do everything out of
2: i really appreciate you hopping on the show sharing your story i know that going through it again um and thinking about all these different things can can really bring some emotion to it and i appreciate you being vulnerable enough to to share with everybody and and hopefully it helps somebody so thank you again for being on the show
0: Thanks for having me.
1: That's it for this episode of The Ted Huff Show. But we know you're wondering where you go from here. TedHuff.com makes it easy for you to get notifications for new episodes, specialized contests, exclusive giveaways, and upcoming events simply by signing up for our mailing list. You'll get access to all this and more by visiting TedHuff.com. That's T-E-D-D-H-U-F-F.com. Until next time, open your mind and expand your empire right here on The Ted Huff Show.